in uh, C.S. Lewis' book, The Voyage of the, uh, the Don Treader, part of the Chronicle of Narnia series, two of the uh, main characters, Lucy and Edmund, find themselves in, in a, a meadow of grass, a huge meadow of grass, kind of an endless expanse. And as they're looking out in the distance, they see a little white spot, and they're curious about it, so they start walking towards that white spot. And eventually they can begin to make out what it is. It's, it's, it's a lamb, this pure white lamb. And as they get close to it, they see that the lamb is cooking a fish breakfast, as lambs do. And the lamb invites them uh, to, to a meal. So they sit down and they begin this wonderful time of, of dining and conversing. And soon the conversation turns to the land of Aslan, or what we might, we might uh, call heaven. And the lamb begins to tell them how to, how to get there. And as he speaks, something happens to the lamb. C.S. Lewis describes it with these words, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. Now, if you, if you know the series, you, you know that Aslan is a great lion, and he is the king of Narnia. And I bring up this, this story because I think this scene kind of captures perfectly what we see here uh, illustrated uh, in Jesus. Or I should say illustrates Jesus here, what John is trying to say. Just, just a few chapters earlier, John introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the pure Lamb of God. He grabs this Old Testament image and employs it to try to capture Jesus as, as this suffering Savior, this servant King who's gentle and lowly and lays down his life, this Messiah who brings forgiveness and, and cleansing as a pure lamb of sacrifice. And so far we've, we've kind of seen that character from Jesus as he's graciously called his disciples and blessed them and then, and then gone to a wedding where he filled up the purification jars, the jars for cleansing and with, the, with the pure wine of the, of the new age. But as we turn the corner into this text, the picture and the tone drastically changes. This, this meek and mild lamb becomes the, the Lion of Judah. And I think ferocious is a pretty good word to describe Jesus' behavior in this scene, if you were paying attention to the reading. This humble uh, carpenter, servant, teacher, uh, his behavior is ferocious. He becomes angry, really, really angry, kicking over furniture, angry. When was the last time you kicked over a piece of furniture because you were so angry? Weaving a whip angry. You ever been that angry? Or you started weaving a whip because you were going to use it? Think of that intense moment where Jesus is looking at that scene 
weaving a whip together. And the thing is, this happens in, in the temple, the house of God. You can imagine Jews reading this story, how shocking this would be. In fact, it's such a shocking scene that some, uh, some commentators just can't quite handle it. They say, well, Jesus probably picked up some grass, and he was kind of weaving a little symbolic whip to capture his anger. But that's, of course, not at all what happened. This is a real whip, and he is really furious. We don't often see Jesus is agitated. In fact, this is kind of a, a one-off. So the obvious question is, why is Jesus so angry? What is so bad that it's brought the lion out, or as, as Revelation says, the wrath of the lamb? Well, to put it simply, it's the worship that he finds in the temple. Or perhaps I should say that the corrupt worship, the defiled worship, nothing upsets Jesus more than defiled worship in the house of God. Now, in the first part of this text, we, we see this defilement in a couple of components, and the most obvious one comes immediately. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple we found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and mon money changers sitting there. Picture the, the scene here. It's, it's the time for Passover. And so Jesus, along with millions of other Jews, are, are heading out to Jerusalem, pilgrimaging to Jerusalem, traveling through one small dusty town after another, probably in kind of caravans. Picture Jesus traveling along, and, and suddenly as you get near Jerusalem, the, the noise and the traffic and the crowds kind of escalate, you know, exponentially. And he, as he enters the city, it, it becomes kind of elbow to elbow with its congestion. Streets lined with merchants vying for tourist dollars and trinkets and souvenirs. That's how it was. A sea of people and donkeys and camels and haggling and bartering. The sounds of the city, right? Full blast. So he starts making his way through the city with his disciples in toe, heading towards the temple. And eventually he, he makes his way to the temple, and as he enters the courts of this magnificent golden stone edifice, something terrible happens. Nothing. There's no change. The bartering and exchanging of goods continues. The hustle and bustle of the streets isn't, isn't kind of fading into the background. It isn't giving way to a kind of solemn atmosphere before God, kind of a peaceful atmosphere for worship. No, it's just business as usual. There's no transition. In fact, most of the scholars say it probably, the, the hustle and bustle probably kind of increased because the temple was the focus of activity this time of year. And uh, sacrificial animals, of course, were in high demand, and people didn't want to travel with their animal and that they were going to bring to sacrifice the whole way. Not to mention they, they knew that if they got there and their animal was deemed not, uh, 
not approved for sacrifice. It couldn't be flawed or in some way it had to be inspected. So there was inspectors there and they would sell pre-approved animals for sacrifice. And so there all these animals, everything from auction down to pigeons, were in the temple and, and, and they could, you could purchase one. And of course, they had worked it out that the currency, you had to use the temple currency, you couldn't use the outside currency. So there's a currency exchange tables everywhere and of course there was a fee in that. They said it was almost a day with wages to actually change your money. Keep in mind that all of this for years had been done across the Kidron Valley uh, on the Mount of Olives, but over time, all of this activity had slowly made its way into the temple, bringing the, the marketplace right into the temple courts. In fact, by Jesus' day, there was a common nickname for the temple area. You know what it was called? It was called the Annas, uh, the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the high priest. The, the Mall of Annas. I guess uh, there's a lot of evidence that, that Annas actually sold franchise booths in the area and made money on each one of them. And it was a little bit like, I went to the movies the other night. You know how you get in there and you can't bring food in, you can't, <laughs> and you've got to pay $25 for popcorn. That's kind of what was going on in the temple. And when Jesus sees this, look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. You think oxen, that's like a 3,000-pound animal or bigger. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You see, what burned Jesus up, what he sees as completely defiling to worship in a way that he will not tolerate, is the marketplace in the temple of God. It's when he sees the economics of, of the business world with its ethics of, of greed and consumeristic thinking having infiltrated right into his father's house. It's a defilement of worship that he hates. And I, I think it's actually pretty important that we kind of uh, park on this for just a minute and think about this application in relationship to the American church today because I think this this stings right at us the end of the whip is right here keeping in mind that the correlation of the temple today is not so much the church today as in as in its buildings but as in the, the household of God as Christians as gathered people where Jesus specifically in our presence, he promises we are being built into the household of God. That's what Second, uh, actually, First Corinthians chapter 2 says. So we are in that sense a temple. Keeping that in mind, the simple question is, has the marketplace of our world invaded the church today? Has it invaded us? I was thinking about this at all like kind of levels. I kind of started at the denominational level, and I was like, you could safely say yes. There are whole denominations that are run by 
businessmen and they're all about the bottom line. Kept alive by real estate holdings and investments, and most of these have completely lost their moorings. Think about at the local church level. I think you might say yes. It's interesting, all the, uh, the principles of the church growth movement that was really big in the 70s and 80s, and you still learn those same principles in seminaries today. Principles about how you grow a congregation. Principles about uh, relational and group dynamics. Principles about targeting kind of a homogeneous unit people that are like people because they attract like people. Principles of about how you design your, your buildings. Principles about uh, you know having vibrant young people out front to create an environment of life. Principles about how you name and brand your church. They're, they all, every single one of those principles goes right back to the Harvard Business School's original textbook. That's where they come from. They're exact same principles for making a business successful in the marketplace. And, and seminaries and churches have just bought this stuff hook, line, and sinker. Why? Because it seems to work. It's how you, you grow uh, a crowd, at least, a group of people. So we have uh, churches and elderships today that function like corporate boardrooms, just hiring and firing by the numbers, judging their success by the bottom line. And let me just say, it's, 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 it's really easy to kind of point the finger at other churches, to point the finger at the, you know, the mega churches and their, all their hip techniques and branding. But we really need to watch ourselves as we strive to grow. because We want to grow. We want to attract people. As we develop our facilities and manage our, our finances, all these facilities we have here. As we hire ministry workers. It's good to be ambitious for the gospel, but we always have to ask what's driving our thinking and our decision-making. Has the marketplace really crept in? But you know, the most important level for us to really ask this about is our own hearts, each one of us. You know, is the marketplace kind of in me? The question we we need to kind of ask ourselves is when, uh, when I come together to worship each Sunday or throughout the week, what's it really about for me? Are we coming in a mode of, of s- service and self-sacrifice? Or are we coming to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Are we coming to glorify God as we love one another? I remember my... Uh, pastor in Australia kind of challenged me that challenging me with questions like that once how do you come to church on Sunday right how, what what spirit are you in have you prayed about how you're going to come and who the Lord would have you serve that day how we'd have you serve you used to talk about praying who for where you would sit that you might sit in the right place where the Lord could really use you for that people around you is there any of this kind of kind of intentionality as you come to worship? Or do you show up in the spirit of the world with kind of a marketplace mentality, with the the economics of the world kind of in your soul? So I, I just come to consume where it's all about me and my experience and what I get out of the moment. 
So really the church and like Christianity is just a means of, of selfish gain or in more spiritual terms of personal blessing. My friends, that's idolatry and it contaminates any real worship. Jesus looks at it like he looks at this scene in the temple and he hates it. He judges it with a whip. It's interesting to me here that this is just as Jesus starts his ministry. One of the first things he does is he heads straight to the temple. And and he, he cleans it out. He judges it. It's interesting, I had that first Peter section read where it talks about when the judgment of God coming. And where does it say it's going to come to first? The household of God. That's where he starts. He works his way out from there. It's so important that we check ourselves and we recheck ourselves at this level because when we lose this battle, when the marketplace invades the church, when it invades us, you know what's one of the first things that's lost or defiled? Witness. Evangelism. Our mission. To be a witness of Christ in the world is is really completely marred. It's interesting, the Greek word used here for temple in verse 1 and 2 is actually a term that refers to the, uh, the outer temple area. Most, yeah, specifically the, the outer courts. Do you know what the outer, who, the outer courts were for or who the outer courts were for? They were for the Gentiles. You know, there were the, the court, then there was the court of, of women, and there was the court of men, and then there was the inner court for just the priests. But the outer court was for the world to come in. It was to be a place of witness. Many people don't realize that the temple, one of its main purposes was to be a witness of God to the world. Solomon's vision in 1 Kings 8.43 is that all the nations would come and fear God as they came to the temple. And according to the prophet Isaiah, God wanted his house to be called a house of prayer for all the nations. It's Isaiah 56.7. But here, the nations are coming, and instead of finding a holy place set apart for the glory of God and people witnessing to his presence with pure and distinct appear uh, distinct demeanor in their lives. They, they, instead of finding that, they find a marketplace, a sales pitch. They find the world in the temple. And, and, and the witness is just snuffed out. When people can't tell kind of where the mall stops and where the church starts, the witness is lost. When what drives the church is the same thing that drives everybody else, personal gain, and consuming for ourselves. Witness has lost the, left the building, or it's left the, the lawn. When there's no distinction between the economics of our lives and the world we engage with, when it's all kind of transactional and self-focused, what's being said? What happens to our witness? So we need to check ourselves. 
I was thinking about, you know, when we, when we don't want to go to church because maybe the, the music team on that week isn't our favorite style or the preacher isn't the one that we like. Or when we feel comfortable neglecting the body and fellowship, not attending for weeks because, hey, we're, we're fine. What are we saying this is about? And I need to check myself on this. You know, when I get bummed because attendance numbers are down or the budget isn't doing well because I don't, and I don't feel like a success, what, what am I saying this is about? The, the, the economy of the world must not be in here as we come to worship. This is to be a place of serving and submitting and giving ourselves, not consuming and taking. We need not anger the Lord in our worship. We need to honor him. Now, there's, a, there's another aspect to the temple the defilement of this temple worship or corrupt religion or whatever you want to call it, not only is it marketplace-driven and has lost its witness, but it's lost something else. We see this in, uh, in the response of the Jews to Jesus' actions here in the temple. Look at verse 18. This is what they say. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? It's, uh, why is that kind of a funny question? Why is that kind of a funny request? It's a request for a sign, and Jesus has just given them one, a very dramatic one, in the cleansing of the temple. His actions are fulfillment of their very own scriptures. In Zechariah 14.21, the prophets proclaimed that on that day, the day of the Lord's judgment, there will no longer be merchants and traders in the house of the Lord. Malachi likewise says that on that day of judgment, suddenly the Lord will come and cleanse his temple so that acceptable sacrifice may again be offered. You see, the sign they need is right in front of their faces, and it's a warning sign. A sign that their corrupt worship is going to be judged. And that Jesus is the messianic judge and king that their prophets predicted and yearned for. But they can't see it. Because what they've lost is the gospel plot. They've lost the plot. They've lost that focus for the Messiah, the Christ. That all their scriptures are about. He's right in front of them and they can't see him. Jesus will actually say this to him in, in two more chapters. In chapter 5, verse 39, he just says it straight out. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They're missing it. The disciples, however, though, in, in stark contrast... They're all over it. Look at verse 17. When he, when he, after he's done these things in the temple, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They do the same thing in verse 22 after the resurrection where it says they remembered what he said and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
See, when the marketplace kind of invades into our worship, when it kind of takes over our hearts, we tend to kind of lose the plot of the gospel really fast. We lose our focus on Christ. We get sidetracked to all these side issues. It's interesting when they ask for a sign. I thought, what are they really asking Jesus for? They're asking him for some miracle, some trick, some healing. That's what we become about. That's what so many churches are sidetracked to today. We kind of lose the gospel focus. And according to verse 23 and 24, Jesus doesn't even trust such faith. You see, their defiled worship has absorbed the marketplace, and it's lost its witness, and it's lost the gospel. And unless their worship isn't, isn't worship at all, it's worship that, that deserves judgment. So what does Jesus do? How does he respond as they come to him and they ask him what this is all about? Does he just bring the hammer down? Does he say, this is the end for all of you? No, look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. They don't get it in their spiritual blindness because they've they've lost the plot. But Jesus simply points them to the cross and his resurrection. I'll raise it up in three days. He points them to the place where the very purpose of their temple with its daily sacrifices for sins will be completely fulfilled as he, the perfect lamb of God, will be sacrificed once and for all, paying for their sins, our sins, all sins with his death. And then as the lion of Judah, he will rise, conquering death, open the way, opening the way into the presence of God for, for all people, for all nations. The outer courts and out. You see, to put it simply, he points them to the place where true, undefiled worship is going to be made possible for all. His finished work on the cross, his resurrection. He's saying to the very people that are going to tear down the temple, which really includes us, the very people that are going to destroy him at the cross, it's okay, I'm going to rise. I'm opening the way for you to truly worship. It's what he's going to offer the woman at the well. He's inviting them to real worship. And, and the disciples get it. We see that when it gets to verse 22 after the resurrection, I mentioned it before, so they remembered and they believed the scriptures. They believe, they trust. And as we, as, we, as we will see as we go, they are brought in to be undefiled worshipers. I find this really super encouraging and hopeful. You see, all week long looking at this passage, I felt a bit uh, weighed down as I thought about 
kind of the American evangelical scene today, just immersed and drowning in consumeristic marketplace thinking and idolatry that most of that we can't even see. So much of the whole scene is just about the pursuit of prosperity and blessing dressed up in Christian platitudes and praise songs. And it was kind of depressing to think about. And then I considered my own heart as I come to worship Sunday after Sunday, just riddled with my own self-interests and idolatry and my own hypocrisies. I can hardly stand up and preach without making it about myself and what people think of me. I thought, wow, the whip is right there. I think if I had been there on that day in the temple, uh, probably would have been on my back. He would have been kicking over the table of, of my life. His fury would have been on me. But Jesus said, tear this temple down. He took the judgment and the fury that we deserve, that I deserve. And he said, I'll raise it up in three days. He raised the true temple. He brought cleansing and the joy that he promised last week of the new age. He opened the way so I can worship, so we can all really worship in him as we trust him, as we come to the cross and believe. That's the good news this morning. Despite all the confused motives of our hearts and our consumeristic thinking and self-interest, we can come in him and bring undefiled worship to the Father's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our worship really isn't in us. That it's not based in our ability to make ourselves willing, good sacrifices, but it's, it's based in your Son. We thank you that as we come today, we can know that you accept our worship in him and are glorified. We pray now that as we go out from here, we would live lives in accord with that, distinct lives for your Son's glory. Amen.